Hello, 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 and welcome to the fourth official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, I'm aware that I've had somewhat of a mishap, and that throughout the few episodes that I've done, I've yet to sort of set a foundation for what my beliefs are, or what I really mean when I say uh, serving the grains of capitalism. So, as a way to fix that, this episode will be focused on establishing what the grounds are, you know, what it means to be cap- uh, capitalistic, what it means to be living in a capitalistic society, and hopefully trying to clear some misunderstandings that you might have from maybe your friends or maybe the media or stuff like that. So to help me with this, it is my great honor to introduce my very first guest in the show, Brian Chang. So Brian is currently a graduate student at the Department of Political Economy at King's College London, where he studies PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics. He's highly interested in issues relating to the moral status of markets and how they promote human welfare. He obtained his first degree in NUS in political science and history, and also spent time working in the Singapore Civil Service. Currently, Brian is also the head of a new organization in Singapore called Students for Liberty. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. It's good to be with you. Right. So... Let's begin with, uh, I want to look at sort of uh, your personal background and your history as a a, a way to to introduce you into the show. So I kind of noticed that you're more of an intellectual, more of the academic sort of personality. So how would you say uh, your environment growing, what would you say was your environment growing up? Did you have a lot of books around you? Did you have, uh, was your parents, did your parents play a big influence or? Well, yes, I've always been very interested in uh, reading books, writing, speaking. I was pretty good at it in school. You know, I was involved in uh, the debate team as well, Mm. right? So that's why I guess I naturally gravitated towards the humanity subjects, the social sciences, and uh, that's, that's one of the Today. I see. So, so when, so this was debate in secondary school or in. I was involved in debating in a secondary school as well as junior college. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Did you take part in any competitions back then? Or? Yes. Uh, those were the national uh, debating competitions. I I enjoyed those very much. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. Moving on from that, I, you you sort of meant you sort of told me that you took a political science in NUS. Yes. What made you decide to major in this uh, in this field? Yes, actually, my decision to major in political science was a decision I came to only in the second year of NUS. Mm. Um, after I actually returned from my exchange program, I was actually still undecided before that. Mm. But my experience in the United States was very formative for me. Mm. It was the uh, 2012 presidential elections, and I witnessed firsthand the importance that Americans mm. uh, placed on their politics. And it was also there that I uh, came across classical liberal ideas, mm. right, which has been the inspiration for most of the work that I do ever since. Ah, I see. So who, who in particular did you uh, find that was inspiring you for classical liberalism? Because I find that in the United States, that, that kind of position is not really adopted by the main parties uh, of today. Yes, that's correct. Mm. Um, but at that time when politics was uh, still more sane, <laughs> right, um, <laughs> right. in the Republican Party, there was an individual called uh, Ron Paul. Mm. Uh, he's currently a former congressman mm-hmm. and uh, he's a three-time presidential candidate mm. um, but he's actually more of a libertarian uh, classical liberal oriented person mm. but he's working within the Republican Party to bring about change so That's I found good. his campaign to be very refreshing mm. so people you know, consider him to be very uh, intellectually honest a consistent person and uh, it was in the United States when I came across his campaign you know, I even went to some of his rallies mm. right? and, I, and I came across the uh, many young people 
mm. who are very excited about uh, his ideas, about what he has to say about central banking, mm. the Federal Reserve, the importance of free society. Mm. And I found that to be very inspiring, especially how you know a 76-year-old uh, congressman mm. right, can inspire young people, university-age students, mm. who would chant his name and you know, cheer for him with such enthusiasm, even in rallies. Right. I, I found that to be uh, very inspiring. Right. And, uh, and I guess I would say it was a very formative experience for me. Yeah, I find I find it I find it quite interesting actually because I remember at the time in two thousand twelve right. that was my first when they had the elections in two thousand twelve that was my first semester in the United States mm-hmm. I, I was really really naive back then so I just thought you know oh Obama is running you know he's right. the first black president yeah. of America you know he's gonna this is he's gonna be his he's, he's running for his second term he's up against this guy Mitt Romney who is like this uh, greedy corporate uh, capitalist banker you know typical conservative stereotype so you know n- naturally back then i leaned towards the uh, obama but i guess I, I find it interesting that you know that you that you you were drawn to ron paul uh especially when so many so many students my age uh, especially for speaking from my, from my own background uh, i you know was more attracted to obama yeah yeah so, well, yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, right? I mean, I, I, I do not know why I gravitated one towards the other, but yeah. uh, I guess I would say I've always been a very idealistic person. You know, I'm yeah. kind of an idealist, I'm kind of an optimist, and, and, yeah. and so when I, when I come across a 76-year-old congressman <laughs> who's able to command the respect of uh, uh, trunks of young people, right. and, 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 and you know, promoting ideas like Austrian economics, right, right? and uh, using that as a slogan to, you know, garner support, I, I felt, felt that to be... Uh, weird at the same time, right? right? right, but, right. but rather, you know, interesting on the other, right, right? Right. So, so being maybe you know the rebel that I am, or someone who's <laughs> rather contrarian, right? right, right. I, I guess I gravitated towards that. You know, I, I found that to be uh, very intriguing. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So that's 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 very interesting. So, uh, moving on. Uh, sure. I noticed that you decided to take a pursue. You 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 worked a little bit in the silver service, yes, and yes. then you decided to. Uh, continue on taking a master's in King's College. So, what made you sort of uh, decide to do a master's, uh, and and you know what what are your aims, you know, for, yeah. for your career? Well, so. my career aspirations uh, is really to become an academic, mm. right? And the reason why is because I see that uh, academics have a very important place in society mm. because they have a huge impact on the intellectual climate of opinion, mm. which in turn determines the course of society. Mm. Right? when people are unhappy with the state of affairs in society. It's not just a problem with the policy or the uh, party in government. Many people just you know look at that; they don't really see beyond, mm. right? But uh, when we want to change something, it's not just a new policy we must implement or you know changing the, the party in government. It's a set of ideas that people believe in mm. that needs changing. We need to have a new mentality, right? So the intellectual climate of opinion, mm. right? What people believe, what people are taught in universities, that's very critical, mm. right? In deciding the the future course of society. So as an academic, I hope to uh, point out, right, the importance of a free and open society mm. and how that you know contributes to human well-being. Mm. I see that as my long-term goal. Right. So, so find it very interesting because uh, speaking from personal experience, I was I studied in the United States right. for a good you know four four years or so. So there is there is there is a tendency for uh, the academics in you know university public university or even some private universities for them to to have a sort of left leaning or left political sure. lean yeah. gravitating towards you know more socialist ideas rather than towards you know uh, more free market or capitalist ideas so in that sense it it's it seems kind of weird that academics can be said to 
hold this mantle of uh, promoting discourse or promoting, uh, you know, free speech or, or introducing new ideas when you're really biased towards this one idea. So how do you say that you aim to guard against this? Uh, I think first of all, it is quite natural for certain schools of thought to mm. emerge and congregate in certain areas. For instance, the University of Chicago mm. right, is, uh, has been historically associated with the uh, free market school of thinking. Right, right, right? Right. And uh, generations of uh, free market economies from the right. Chicago school right. have uh, emerged from, from, from that institution. Mm. So I think it's natural for intellectual activity uh, to congregate in a certain place and to be self-reproducing. Mm. So I think it's quite natural uh, for that to happen uh, on one level. Mm. But of course, on the other level, from an academic standpoint, you know, being an intellectual, it's important to uh, understand where your opponent is coming from mm. and to uh, engage in a civil discourse. So I like to uh, give the distinction between being an ideologue and being ideological. Mm. I think it's okay to be ideological because everyone, we have an ideology and it's natural to lean on one side or the other. Okay. Right? But the the, the is about becoming an ideologue. Okay. Right? And I think the difference is whereby, you know, as an ideologue, you are dogmatic, you're not listening to new ideas, you're not really engaging with opponents on a fair basis. I so I think it's okay to, to have an ideology guiding your beliefs, guiding your work, right. but it's important to guard against being an ideologue. And I think that's a key distinction, right, that we can make. Alright. So, so then you, you, you would say that, you know, the academic left, as they, as they call it in the United States, there would be more of ideologues rather than uh, having having an ideology. Well, to be fair, I think to all academics, I think they are ideologues on both ends of the spectrum. Right, right, right. They are definitely ideologues, uh, you know, who are libertarian, ideologues on the, on, on the uh, mm. conservative right as well. Mm. Um, so, so I think it's incumbent for academics and intellectuals of all parties, mm. right, to, um, to, to be fair to the opponents right. and to engage in a proper, you know, academic discourse. Yeah, right. so, so it's a matter of having a bit of, you know, hubris, humility to sort of listen Give your opponent respect definitely, and, and definitely, listen yes. to their and, views. And what I like to say is that we need to engage our opponents on their own terms as well. Mm. Like to understand what where they're coming from, mm. what they believe, and uh, and try to work as much within their system, mm. within, within their frame of thought, mm. and show why, you know, my conclusions, for instance, you know, may meet their objectives even better than their conclusions meet. Mm. So, so right. it's, okay, yeah. so I find this very interesting. So what you described to me seems like when you're trying to when you're trying to argue with someone, it is better to sort of build bridges, find some middle exactly, ground. Exactly, exactly. But then you've also mentioned that you've had debate, debate. Uh, you've been in debate teams and uh, you, you've uh, participated in some debate competitions. So is it the same in debate as well, or is it more that you're trying to like, you know, right. steamroll your opponent? Yeah. Well, well, of course, I think there is a very big difference between a discussion and a debate because mm. I mean, being in a competitive environment as a debater, sometimes you're trying to win the um, yeah. votes of the judges as well. Yeah. So in that setting, you know, you might try to find ways to outdo your opponent, to outtalk him, to outsmart him. Right. Right. So I think there there is a kind of, you know, incentive to do that. Right. But of course if one, you know, tries to get into academic discourse, mm. maybe through writing journals or, you know, face to face discussion, mm. I guess the environment is slightly different. And it's not just a matter of out talking you, outsmarting you. Mm. But really trying to uh, understand where we're coming from in the first place. And uh, at least have this common ground that you know we are working with. I see. Yeah. So 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 in the sense, if you're having discussion, you're you're both trying to work towards finding you know what the actual truth of the matter is that you're trying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whether whether it be on some uh, philosophical matter or some you know different point of contention, but then you know w- when you speak about when you mention that point about debating when you're trying to win the the votes of the judges, you know you 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 often see 
between presidential candidates that they're trying to win the votes of the people as well. So, so you sort of think that mentality trickles down uh, to their voters where they have a very, very strong, uh, you know, uh, lean for their own uh, side and they tend to become the, these, these kind of ideologues rather than ideological. Well, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the setting of politics, right, the role of debate um, is quite controversial. I think mm. there is great value in having debate, uh, discussion, contestation in the, in the, in the public media. Mm. And I think certainly the, the, the US system is very good for that. Mm. But of course, the unfortunate fact is that, you know, um, this discourse in, in, in politics in public mm. um, can become very superficial. Yeah. Right? By both sides just throw slogans at each other and, yeah. and you know, uh, politics becomes mere entertainment. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. like reality TV. Right? Yeah. Where people like Donald Trump will flourish. Yes. So which is why, you know, sometimes I, I you know don't really like to, you know, follow politics. Yeah. You know, day to day politics. Yeah. I think, you know, that, that that's why, you know, coming back to what I do, it's really about um, you know, changing minds, right? Yeah. Coming from an educational standpoint. Yeah. Not you know, you know, not about politics and everyday politics. All right. Yeah. Alright. So okay, that's very good. So Okay, so then speaking on your career, then sure. um, in the future, would you like to be? Would you rather? Are you planning on staying in London to to work as an academic there, doing research, teaching, or are you coming planning to come back to Singapore? Well, I've no uh, immediate plans to um, confirm any you know single location, but I'm open to uh, any academic institution mm. whereby I'll be able to carry out my research. Okay, like, so it may be in London, maybe in the United States or Singapore. I have right. no you know uh, questions about it. Okay, so then to put it in another way. In which academic environment would you rather be working? Well, uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, I enjoy very much the uh, academic intellectual environment I've enjoyed for the last one year in London, mm-hmm. uh, doing my graduate program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one reason, you know, is because there's just so much more intellectual activity that's happening there. Right. You know, there are a lot more think tanks and organizations. Right. And uh, you know, every few, uh, you know, every few days, I can just pop by to a talk in one of the lecture theaters. Mm-hmm. So I guess that a vibrant environment is something that I enjoy very much. And uh, yeah, you know, staying in London would be a great idea okay that's good i've actually never been to L- london myself I, I, I really do hope to go there someday but you know it's especially uh not not safe right now i would say well yeah, yeah okay <laughs> right so moving on um i want to talk about your the organization that yes, you set yeah, up sure. uh, students for liberty yeah. uh so so maybe maybe as a more natural progression would you sort of uh, be willing to talk about what your own personal beliefs are and then, you know, extend to how that they went about setting up this organization and sure. what you what yeah. you aim so, to do? So I think this? it's important for me to explain where I'm coming from, what yes. my beliefs and positions are for your listeners. Mm-hmm. So I'm a classical liberal, mm-hmm. right? And that's also been described by some people as a libertarian or neoliberal, mm. right? And that means I believe in the free exchange of goods and services, mm-hmm. the open society, where the free movement of people, ideas, and capital across borders is welcome, mm. civil liberties and tolerance for all, equal rights for everyone, mm-hmm. and finally, the rule of law. So this means practically that in society, the role of government should be very limited. Mm. And other than protecting us against crime and providing basic services, people should be free to interact voluntarily with others mm-hmm. in markets and in civil society. Mm-hmm. So we value the principle of non-coercion, right? This is our core value that we believe in. Mm. 
right? So, so these ideas have been very instrumental historically in generating the tremendous prosperity that we see in the, in the modern world today, mm. and which continues to create you know opportunities for many people in poor countries, right? right? But the problem is that these very ideas that I'm trying to promote mm. that are very important are under attack all around the world today, mm. right? We see earlier this year the Economist magazine ran an article called Bullishness is Back, where it compared the state of the world in 2017 to what it was back then in 1917, mm. when Bolshevik socialism was in ascendancy, right? So mm. at that time, the free exchange of ideas, capital, free movement, you know, these ideas, these concepts, you know, were rejected, mm. right? And the world was plunged to totalitarianism for the next few decades, right? Wow. So today, we have politicians in the world, people in society, political parties, even in Singapore, calling for protectionism, less immigration, how we can restrict foreigners, right? right? These are dangerous ideas, right? And in right. many parts of the world, this is happening. And uh, in Singapore, even, you know, when it comes to the issue of tolerance and diversity, people are not free to choose how they want to live, right? Right? So in Singapore, homosexuality remains a criminal offense, right? right? And, and remains the case in, in many other countries today, right? And so these are the trends that organizations like mine are trying to uh, combat against, mm. right? And so Students for Liberty is, um, uh, is an organization that actually um, started in the United States mm -hmm. in 2008. And since then, it has grown to uh, thousands of students around the world oh, wow. um, who are pro-liberty and pro-market. And uh, the one that's in Singapore is just a local chapter mm. um, that, that I've begun and partnering with the uh, international SFL body. Oh. And so uh, what we are really doing is engaging young people in Singapore mm -hmm. and uh, talking to them about uh, freedom, about free markets, you know, about tolerance, about diversity, mm. right? because we are trying to change minds, right? mm. trying to engage them where they are. Okay. Uh, so, so then... Uh, what, what, what kind of avenues do you hope to go about achieving your, 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 your goals of reaching the, the students then? Right, so we are still quite a young organization at this point. So yeah. we are trying to find different avenues uh, with which we can engage students. Okay. So um, you know, we, are, we are planning to hold uh, talks. Mm. So for instance, I'm happy to announce that for the next uh, uh, five months or so, mm. we have uh, organized a series of four talks. Oh, wow. Right. And the first one is on the 8th of July in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon. Mm. It's just one week after Pink Dot. Mm. We are trying to leverage on the, uh, on the issue. Mm. And we are going to talk about the compatibility between LGBT rights and tolerance mm. uh, and market capitalism, mm. right? whether they are compatible or not. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So, so, do you mean to say that there's an impression that they weren't compatible in the first place? Or? Well, yes, yes. There, there are. There are mm. many, um, you know, individuals mm. uh, could be economists or sociologists uh, who who see that capitalism mm. uh, is not something that promotes LGBT rights. Ah, so yeah. you, so you sort of are trying to, you know, clear the clear the air on that exactly, issue. Exactly. Exactly. And and also this is an opportunity for us to to, to share about uh, the relevance of economic. Uh, ideas right, and right. how economic analysis is useful right. to even understand issues like LGBT rights. Huh. So I'm intending to discuss the economics of discrimination. Okay. I'm intending also to talk about the evolution of the uh, family oh. and um, the, the institution of marriage over time and right. how the rise of capitalism right. has facilitated the, the, the um, uh, rise of LGBT identity hmm. and freed marriage and family from uh, the dire straits of economic production. Right in the pre-capitalist era, right. So um, yeah, these are some of the themes that I'll be exploring. Sounds like a sounds like a very interesting talk that you're going to be having. I believe so. Having. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So so okay. So another point, right? You mentioned that you're going to be uh, hosting this this event. Uh, you know, talking about LGBT LGBT rights and discussing how how market capitalism 
you know, what their compatibility yeah, compatibility yeah, sure. with it. So, as I'm sure some of us some of us know, LGBT rights is quite a contentious issue sure. in Singapore, particularly because of uh, you know rules such as uh, what is it provision three seven seven eight three seven seven eight yeah yes so yeah. that uh, the prohibits gay marriage is it? Um, that's not about gay marriage. Mm. So um, we are, we are not even talking about gay marriage. So mm. basically, three seven seven eight is a penal code that criminalizes. Um, homosexual activity. Homosexual activity. Yeah. So it's not even an issue of uh, whether you are allowed to marry. Okay. But basically, the government, if they wish to, they can uh, use this law right. to, in a sense, punish you. Basically, if you're caught having same-sex activities with someone right, else. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So then, so then, based on that, based on the you know the controversies around this issue, do you expect any maybe negative government fe- government feedback when you're holding these talks or holding these events? Uh, well, I hope not. Uh, well, well, I guess you know people in Singapore they have gotten themselves into trouble very needlessly, yeah. right? When they try to make claims that they cannot justify yeah. about the actions of certain government ministers, yeah. right? So that is not what we are doing. Yeah. So it's, it it bears uh, reiterating that SFL is not a political organization. Mm. We are not. We are not partisan. We are not anti PAP or anything of that sort. We are just here to uh, educate people and change minds. Mm. We are here to talk about economics. We are here to promote an appreciation of the class liberal tradition mm. we want to talk about Adam Smith right John Locke David Hume Milton Friedman we're not here to talk about what this minister said and that minister said so I hope you know with right. this approach we can avoid getting into trouble right I guess I, I mean I guess on that point it'll be it's, it's, it's good to sort of distinguish between outright slander uh, for political means and right. you know exactly. having, having good discussion yeah. To, yeah. To, to talk about uh, certain issues yes, right exactly yeah alright so so uh, that's very good. Um, so, what what kind of uh, what sort of uh, challenges do you see facing uh, SFL going forward, or you know, do you have have you faced any challenges so far? Well, I think the main challenge right now is that we are a small organization, so we need uh, manpower support, we need financial resources. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we are trying to uh, recruit more individuals who are like-minded, who are willing to help us. Mm. So, um, yeah, these are challenges that any young organization faces, and I hope that we'll be able to to uh, overcome them. Right, right. So, yeah. so speak, on, on that point, do you have any... Um, so, how are you actually funding these events, or is it mostly, uh, you know, member, member support? Yeah, so we are funded in two ways. Mm. So I think uh, it's partly by um, member donations and voluntary contributions. And also we are partnering with the uh, International Students for Liberty body uh, that is international all around the world. So there are a lot of uh, financial and non-financial support Mm. that we are able to gain from from them as well. So so for instance, SFL has many... um, you know, publications and books mm-hmm. and resources that they're able to provide to us and we are going to make use of them at our events. Okay. Yeah. So so are you able to suggest speakers or are you able to bring down speakers from that's, them as well? That, yes, that, that's possible as well. SFL has a network of uh, many uh, renowned speakers, ah. uh, economists, philosophers, uh, political scientists. Uh, they call it Speakers Bureau. Mm. So, uh, yeah, you know, so if let's say SFL Singapore grows and, you know, have a critical mass, mm. we'll be able to engage some of these speakers and maybe even hold a conference or mm. maybe a one-day forum, you know, bring some of these um, international speakers. Mm. So, for instance, you know, the International Students for Liberty Conference mm. that's held annually every year, uh, which is attended by thousands of students around the world. Mm. Um, you know, like I think two years ago, they had, um, you know, Edward Snowden. You oh, know, wow. Edward Snowden actually um, 
you know, of course not not physically, <laughs> but because he can't be there physically, right. uh, he was actually being live. Okay. Uh, you know, online and they had this you know online discussion. Right. Right, and then also they had um you know Park Yeon Mi, mm. the uh, North Korean refugee and activist, mm. the girl that escaped from North Korea, right, who wrote right. a book. Right. Yeah. So we have these interesting speakers, and you know, yeah, it's my vision. You know, maybe one day we can have some of these. You know, uh, world-renowned people in Singapore as well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hope, hopefully, hopefully, I hope, hope to see the day that I you guys so. uh, set so. set up. Yeah. You know, a big yeah. event and hire some big name speakers to come. Yeah. All right. So that that I think that's very good. All all good and well. I personally, I think that you you guys are really really bold in uh, setting up this uh, organization yeah. especially in a climate such as Singapore where classical liberal ideas are not really being talked about or discussed on the news media that much so moving on right and to the to the real bulk of the bulk of the show now explaining capitalism and what it means to be a capitalist sure. so Brian if you could sum up the idea of capitalism in one sentence what would it be well, one sentence is pretty difficult, but, <laughs> but I'll try my best. Okay. Um, so first of all, I think we, we, we must uh, break down some of the um, major keywords here. Okay. So capitalism simply means an economic system, you know, that's based on private property rights. Okay. Right. It's as simple as that. Right. But of course, we do not just want capitalism. We want market capitalism. Right. The word market is very important. Mm. Because it's not just about private property rights, which is what capitalism is about. Mm. But it's also about the economic freedom to trade. Yep. Right, to buy and sell, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to have competition between firms, between consumers, between producers. That's markets. Okay. Right? And, and, and so we want market capitalism, whereby there's economic freedom, competition, and private property rights. Right? And socialism is just the reverse of that. Right? Private property rights is outlawed, and there is no economic freedom. Mm. Right? The government dominates the economy. The government plans how production is to be carried out. Mm. They decide on the basic economic questions of society, right? what mm. to produce, for whom to produce, and how much to produce. The government dictates um, these issues in a socialist economy. Mm. Right? So I think the best way to understand the difference between both market capitalism and socialism mm. is this term called spontaneous order. Mm. Right? And I think that's a very beautiful term that, that you know, your listeners, I think, uh, will, will really benefit from. Mm. So I think spontaneous order simply means order that's arising without any conscious design, right? So there is okay. no one central body right. dictating economic outcomes. But despite that, we see a great deal of economic coordination in a market economy, mm. right? So, so, you know, it's just like uh, in a football game, right? Mm. The, the, the score of a football game, whether it's 5-4, 3-0, whatsoever, mm. is entirely determined by the free competition between both teams, right? Mm. The referee... Right, doesn't you know direct the game? He doesn't dictate where each player is supposed to run to, right? Okay. But he only enforces well, you know, well, that, general. That's contentious. Well, of course, of course. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So, so the referee just you know enforces general rules, right? right. So similarly, the government in free society, in a free market economy, right. exists just to you know to enforce general rules, right? Mm. Don't steal, don't engage in violence, right? Mm. So they they enforce contracts, they protect property rights, and economic outcomes are the product of free competition. Mm. Right, so the idea of spontaneous order, you know, it's not easy to understand, mm. right? Because when people see order, right, they think that it must have been brought about by conscious yeah. design, yeah. right? Mm. But uh, but a lot of institutions in society today that we see, like language, like money, mm. right, it's not invented by any one person, mm. right? They are product of evolution over time, mm. right? It's what um you know the philosopher Adam Ferguson called the product of human action, mm. but not human design, right? Mm. So that's the essence of uh, capitalism. Right, it's spontaneous order, 
right? Yeah. But socialism, by contrast, is a planned order, mm. right? There's someone at the top directing the economy, right? Where and how resources are to be used in society, right? right? So that is the main distinction between, I would say, capitalism and socialism, right. whether it's spontaneous order or it's a planned order. Yeah, so, so I, I find it really interesting, actually, how, you know, the term spontaneous order itself is a bit of an oxymoron, That's right? correct, yes. Yeah, but yeah. I guess you would say, you know, uh, I guess you could kind of say, you could kind of say that this is because of the structure of capitalism uh, it's, well, that, that itself that allows this spontaneous order to occur. Because, you know, as, as I've noticed from my own uh, observations, being a being capitalistic person or living in a capitalistic society means that you agree to participate in a system whereby you have a mutual exchange, uh, voluntary, yes. voluntary that's mutual right. exchange. Yeah. That, that's, the, that's the key phrase right there. Voluntary mutual exchange, right? Whereas if you're looking at it from a socialist, in a socialist economy, this doesn't exist because the government sort of uh, basically forces you to, to do things, right? Or in, in, in sort of a planned economy sense. Yeah. Well, yes, that's correct. And I think that's the great marvel of Adam Smith, mm. right? Who first, you know, uh, touched on this idea, right? Whereby right. he talked about how the pursuit of individual self-interest, right. right, will lead to the common good, mm. right? But of course, many people, you know, they, they misunderstand Adam Smith as saying the pursuit of self-interest as always leading to the common good, right? right? right. But, but that is not what he said. Right. right, because uh, just as individuals have the tendency to truck, butter, and trade, mm. right, they also have the tendency to rape, pillage, and plunder, mm. right. So, so according to Adam Smith and classical liberal economists uh, like me, mm. what we emphasize is the institutions of the game that matter, right. Institutions are like the laws of society, the economic system, mm. right, and it's under the institutions of property, mm. prices, and profit laws, mm. right where this spontaneous order happens, mm. right? So with the institutions of property, price and profit laws, mm. that is where the pursuit of individual self-interest will lead to the common good. Mm. And absent these institutions, that's where the pursuit of self-interest will not lead to the common good, right? So, so mm. self-interest is everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Self-interest exists in any human society. Mm. The question is that how do you channel this to the common good? How do you make use of this, mm. right? To achieve the social good for everyone else, mm. right? It's the, it's the institutions that matter in society. Right. And what market capitalism does is that using private property and using the price mechanism, mm. it harnesses right the pursuit of self-interest by individuals, mm. right, and use that for the common good. Right, right. That's the magic of the market. Yeah, exactly. And it, I, I think the point on self-interest is also, you know, I, I, I guess this is a really contentious point among uh, many, maybe many, many young people who are not very, uh, or maybe tend to be a little bit naive, don't really sure. understand how the the economics work. You know, they think that oh, people. If people are selfish or people are self-interested, that is automatically bad. Well, right. you know, in, in, in the case of capitalism, that is not necessarily the case. In fact, that is, you know, self-interest can lead to good outcomes, right? So there's a, there's a real distinction between uh, intention and, and outcome, which I think it, it's, a, it's, it's good to sort of a distinction and, and, and make sure that you have a clear idea of what is which. You know, just because, just because someone says, I intend to do something, doesn't mean necessarily that that uh, intention will lead to good outcomes, right? Especially in the case where you have, when you see in a, in a planned economy, in a social socialist economy, they are they're doing this. You know, they they, they want to plan the economy on on their intention on on good intentions, basically. Yeah, exactly. They want to have everyone to have you know, they want to have everyone to have a common uh, you know e- equality of labor or equality of goods, equality of property, etc., etc., which seem like very very uh, you know good ideal ideal sort of uh, values or ideal goals to reach, but in practice, 
the outcomes are very very far from from what they sort of intend exactly yeah. exactly and you know that's you know really why socialism in history has failed mm. right and we always fail right because it's it's simply an unrealistic system mm. right? well the, the, of course the morality of systems is a different story altogether and we can you know have that for a separate podcast but sure. but when it comes to how realistic the system is it's, it simply isn't Right? Mm. Why? Because socialism doesn't cope with the realities of human nature, right? So in that sense, it's not what I call a robust system, mm. right? So a robust system is one that can deal with the fact that human beings have self-interest, number one, mm-hmm. and number two, they have limited knowledge, mm. right? Capitalism is a robust system because it not only assumes that, it makes use of the pursuit of self-interest by cognitively limited people mm-hmm. to bring about the social good, Right? And it does so through, as I said, property prices and profit loss, mm-hmm. right? But socialism, you know, doesn't take into account these 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 aspects of human nature and doesn't cope with them, right? See. And that's one of the main reasons why socialism failed because there is an incentive problem and there is a knowledge problem. Right? The incentive problem basically means that you know the planners mm. don't necessarily have the incentive, right, to bring about the common good. As mm. we see in socialist societies, many of the planners in government, they are corrupt themselves, mm-hmm. right? They themselves are self-interested. Right. So, you know, their motivation, they may not really be public-spirited, you know, to bring about the common good, to bring right. about equality or fairness, right. right? Which is what, you know, some of these socialist ideas are in the first place, right? right? And even if, even if we assume that socialist planners are public-spirited, mm-hmm. the next question we must ask is whether they have the knowledge that's necessary to plan right. the economy, which right. is a very complex task, right, right that, that a planner has to grapple with, so, right? so, and, and which is why you know, socialism has failed in history. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so w- w- what do you mean when you say knowledge problem? I mean, like, yeah. in, in a capitalist system, sometimes when I'm, looking, when I'm looking to buy certain things, there's so many products out there, I have a knowledge problem because I don't know, you know, the, the, uh, it's, it's impossible for me to sort of compare the different technical points of each product, say maybe toothpaste or toothbrushes. Uh, That's in, correct. In, in one instance. Yeah. So what's the knowledge problem in a socialist economy? Yeah, well, you know, the, the knowledge problem is, is a very complex idea. It yeah. was uh, first explained by the Austrian economist uh, Ludwig von Mises during the socialist calculation debate in the early 20th century. Okay. So he argued that socialism cannot work because it does away with the institutions of property, mm. prices and profit loss. Mm. Right? How does this argument work? In simple terms, without private property, there can be no markets. Mm. Right? And if there are no markets, there will not be market prices. Mm. Right? And in such a situation, the government planner, mm. no matter how public-spirited he is, will have nothing to use to calculate the economic feasibility of mm. different combinations of capital goods. Mm. Right? So prices in a market economy tell us the value of the relative scarcity of resources. And without this indicator, the government is simply groping the duck. Yeah. Right? So economic calculation in the socialist commonwealth is simply impossible. Yeah. Right in the words of uh, Ludwig von Mises. So, yeah. which is why it's amazing today that socialists want to foist their misguided experiments on people, <laughs> right, with uh, disastrous results. Right? Yeah. But you know, on that point uh, that you raised now, you know, about in the supermarket and right, making decisions, right. right? The beauty of capitalism is that it does not require perfect knowledge. Mm. Right. It does not require you to know everything there is to know about the economy. Mm. Right. All you need to know is respond to price signals. Mm. Right. So, a price, you know, as some uh, free market economists have said is a signal, is an information signal wrapped in an incentive, mm. right? So it's an information signal that signals to you, you know, the relative scarcity of uh, goods and services, mm. right? So you do not need to know 
uh, what's happening in, in, in the farms of China, mm. right, or in the forests of Africa, right. for you to know how, you know, all the different production plants, you know, come together to bring about the food that you're ordering, right, right uh, in, in a restaurant. Mm. You do not need to know all these little details, mm. right? You don't even need to know how, you know, a pencil, you know, for the matter is created, mm-hmm. how a laptop is created. All mm. you need to know is, is the price, mm. right? You know, price changes. And also that's how, you know, producers uh, respond. Right, the price changes, right? So yeah. prices are very important information signals, yeah. uh, which reduces the need for individuals to have uh, full information. Yeah. Right? But that is not the case in socialism. Mm. Right? Because in socialism, the socialist planner will need uh, you know, a huge amount of information mm. right, to plan the economy in an effective way. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, ne- never really thought about that in the case of uh, prices having that sort of a function in, in, in a capitalistic, capitalistic society. You know, certainly when you think about prices, you might think, you know, some, maybe, maybe it's valued, uh, maybe the reason why something is uh, more expensive than the other is because it's made with better quality or, right. or you know, it's a, a, a better standard or certification mm-hmm. in that sense. Uh, yeah, so, okay. So then, now, I, I want to be, be sort of clear on this, however. Uh, you, you make the distinction and you sort of contrast between capitalism and socialism. Mm-hmm. You say that one, one, uh, one has a, you know, a free market economy, but it is not without government. It has government in a limited sense to raise you know, institutions and stuff like that. And you contrast that with socialism, which is the overreach of government. It's a planned, fully planned economy. They own all the, the, the means of production. They decide how the economy should run and how it should work. However, we see in many instances, you know, government is not just limited to, say, setting the rules of the game or, or uh, you know, setting these uh, institutions, these important institutions, as you mentioned, but rather they, they tend to overreach as well and go into places such as, uh, you know, education or defense or uh, even, you know, food and, and, and in some cases. So, which, so it, it seems it seems to me that you know this is more like a, a spectrum rather than a, a spectrum of uh, of, of government uh, involvement rather than uh, you know a mere binary of uh, one or the other. Of course, you you are right to say that you know there is a continuum of different economic systems in the world today. Hmm. But that's why in order to understand this spectrum, we need to understand the ideal types first. Hmm. Right. So what I was giving you. Uh, were the ideal types on both ends, mm. right? Socialism and uh, capitalism. Mm. Right? So the um, on the extreme end, the capitalism that I'm favoring, mm. the one that classical liberals want, mm. is basically a capitalism whereby the government is limited only to basic functions. And what are these functions? The protection of private property, the mm. enforcement of contracts, the mm. coining of sound money, right? And and also providing probably some uh, basic you know public goods. Mm. That's all. But of course, you're right to say that many uh, economies, mm. although they are primarily market-oriented and capitalist, mm. nonetheless have a lot of government interventions. Mm. Right? There could be regulations, right. there may be subsidies given to firms, right. Right? there could be grants given out to certain companies, mm. right? there could be you know, uh, welfare, you know, uh, welfare systems and provisions, uh, such that it's no longer a minimal state, but it's kind of an interventionist uh, kind of a government. Mm. Yeah. So, so yes, there is this huge spectrum. Uh, even though some some economies are more market oriented, and some I would say are in a sense more uh, you know interventionist or moving towards a more social democratic model. Okay. Yeah. So then, how would you say Singapore fares on this uh, right. spectrum of government intervention? You know, c- certainly we have 
I, I would like to say that we have a, a pretty free economy. We seem to be doing pretty well on, on many fronts. You know, we are the e- world's easiest place to do business. We have a high ranking of uh, economic uh, liberty as well. But at the same time, we have uh, many, many government institutions and many agencies that set out to help uh, you know, local companies and stuff like that, whether through subsidies yes. or even, or even uh, through con- uh, the conscription as well for army boys. Yeah, so how, how, what do you think about Singapore right. then? So, so of course, uh, Singapore is not a socialist economy mm. and neither is uh, Singapore a laissez-faire free market heaven mm. right, that classical liberals like myself want. Mm. Right? So, so I would say Singapore is somewhere in the middle. Mm. Right? So first of all, to refer to the, uh, some of those statistics that you highlighted, mm. right? so the Index of Economic Freedom and the Economic Freedom of the World Report mm. ranks Singapore amongst first and second. Mm. in terms of economic freedom. So using these rankings alone, some people may think that Singapore is a very free market uh, economy. Mm. To a large extent, that's true, but Mm. we need to know that these rankings are a comparative measure and Mm. not an absolute scale. So in that sense, Singapore is more economically free as compared to many other countries. But that does not mean that on an absolute scale, right. Singapore is a, is a super free in a sense, right. on an absolute scale. Right. So, so it is largely a free market capital system, but there are also some elements of economic planning in uh, certain aspects. Mm. So I think the best way to understand this is to use the term industrial policy. Mm. Right? So I think in Singapore, the economic planning is largely in the form of industrial policy. Mm. And industrial policy is where the government promotes certain firms and industries over others. Mm-hmm. Right? It could be for the purposes of economic restructuring mm. or boosting national competitiveness. Yeah. And industrial policy is uh, are used um, in many countries, not just Singapore, yeah. and it involves grants, subsidies, monetary incentives yeah. to specific firms and industries. Yeah. And besides these provisions, uh, industrial policy also involves uh, the presence of some state-owned enterprises and government-linked corporations. Right. And in Singapore, uh, these take uh, the forms of uh, like Tomasic Holdings, mm-hmm. right? Um, that is actually a government-linked uh, mm. corporation. Mm. So, you know, it's interesting you pointed it out because you have written an article yourself and it's on the uh, Student for Liberty website. It's titled Disruptive Culture for a Disruptive Economy, That's right? Great. Whereby you sort of... Uh, suggest that the, the, the amount of government involvement in Singapore maybe is a little bit too much. They tend to be, they, they, they tend to, they, they will have the outcome of uh, coddling these uh, our, our local SMEs or our local firms. And you have these, uh, you know, s- suggestions of reform whereby you say, you know, remove all these uh, subsidies and stuff like that. Now, these subsidies are very, very popular among local firms. And, and, yes. and, and it, it has helped support them throughout the years. Now, why do you think that that uh, you why do you think that uh, it needs to be removed? Right. I mean, uh, as we see over the last few years, especially over the last ten years, the Singapore government has been trying to increase mm. the productivity and innovation of our local enterprises. Mm. Right. Um, because we are trying to be less reliant on multinational corporations and foreign investment, mm-hmm. and we see that local enterprises are the backbone of our economy. Mm. Right. So the question is that how can we achieve this? Right. Mm. Um. I'm. All I'm trying to say is that it's counterproductive to use grants and subsidies in order to achieve this. Why is that the case? Because when we have more grants and subsidies given to firms, mm. right, it actually stifles the process of competition. Firms are shielded from competition mm. when they receive grants and subsidies from government. Right? And when they are shielded from competition, to that extent, mm-hmm. competitiveness is reduced. When you want firms to be competitive, you need competition. Mm. Competition is the first order imperative. Competitiveness mm. is secondary. 
competitiveness comes after you have competition. Hmm. But when you remove competition, right, then the competitiveness they're trying to achieve is lost as well. Right. Okay. So, on that note, would you say that uh, agencies set up to purposely to enforce competition, would you, would you allow that? Uh, well, it really depends on uh, okay, what you mean. Right, right. So, 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 yeah. so, for example, in the, it's, it's in, complex, yeah. in the United States, the U.S. have set up, uh, and this is, they're talking about, what is it, the FCC, the, uh, basically talking about uh, setting up this agency, this, this government agency, to enforce comp- competition uh, for the internet, right? For internet providers, network providers. Basically saying that you cannot charge uh, users or, or to, for a, a different rate or sort of limit their, their access to internet. In that yeah. sense, but at the same time, they force uh, compliance rules and stuff. So, you know, how 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 do you think this uh, balance uh, should be should be done? Well, I I don't think that there is a need for any government agency you know, to ensure competition <laughs> because I think more often than not, the presence of these agencies actually stifle competition, right? Really? We, we see a lot of these uh, firms. Um, you know, actually trying to gain special privileges from the government mm. and trying to capture these agencies for their own benefits, right? So mm. uh, what, what, what I mean is this term called a regulatory capture, mm. right? And uh, basically the prevalence of special interests, right? So, so what I'm trying to say is that when government is involved in the economy, mm. uh, even for the purposes of trying to ensure competition, mm-hmm. it creates an incentive for private firms, right? To uh, capture this agency for their own private benefit. Huh. So instead of um, regulating the economy, instead of uh, ensuring competition, um, private firms and uh, government uh, agencies and regulators are actually working hand in hand. That's why you have crony capitalism. Right? Oh. So when the economy is, um, you know, basically when, when the government is very powerful in the economy, right. Right, this creates a, an attractive target of opportunity right, for mm-hmm. private firms to come in mm-hmm. and you know, basically capture the government for their own purposes. You know, actually, to simplify this, I think I would just go back to the football analogy. Right. Right. Basically, if the referee is so powerful, yeah. right, if the referee has the ability to, you know, uh, determine the outcome of the game, yeah. right, then basically the football firms will have a great incentive to bribe, right, to bribe the referee because, he know, <laughs> because they know, right. right, they know that if the referee was in their pockets, right, right they will get the outcome that they want, mm. right? Which is why we need to limit the power of government. We need to limit right the role of the referee, mm. right, in, in a football game, right. So the analogy holds. So so that, <laughs> so that's that's that is quite that is quite a fascinating point that you brought up, because you know a lot of people have the fear that when a company gets too big, when they when they have uh, monopolies or oligopolies, right. they tend to, you know, have these abuses of corporate power. This this is where you see the the biggest stereotypes of like. The, the, the greedy corporate banker or the greedy CEO, you know, being paid billions of dollars but when their when their workers at the, at the factory lines are getting paid like peanuts, right? So, but but you you say that it is actually the case that government involvement makes them gives them this uh, power to become so. Uh, oh yes, so, that's so, so correct. Strong. And I think yeah. the main reason is because in a free market, mm. right? Um, firms have to compete on a level playing field, yeah. uh, which means that the only way for a firm to be a strong firm and to dominate in the economy is to yeah. serve consumers. Yeah. Right? So without government intervention, right. without government-created barriers to entry, right. it is impossible for a private firm to become a monopoly. It's impossible for a private firm to maintain market power indefinitely. Oh. Right? So when, when a firm right, wants to become a monopoly, mm. wants to maintain indefinite market power, Right, the best way is to actually get a special privilege from government. Mm. Right, and and so why? Because government laws are coercive. Right, mm. coercive government laws are able to stifle competition mm. uh, in an indefinite manner. Right, 
right? Which is why you see, for instance, you know, uh, many uh, taxi cab companies in yeah. many countries yeah. trying to uh, maintain a licensing regime, yeah. right? Which is a government uh, system, yeah. right? Because they want to um, block the entry of Uber, yeah. right? Which is a private competitor. Yeah, and right? I guess when you I guess when you put it that way, it sort of makes you know a little bit sense because. When when you're when you're already a big established firm and you've been doing this, uh, doing your whatever it is you're doing, maybe in the case of like uh, running a taxi in Singapore, right? You've been like doing this uh, the, the 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 traditional way for a long time, and then suddenly you see companies like Grab and Uber coming in, coming in with their new technologies and exactly. stuff like that. Yeah. You know, cutting your business model, offering better value to customers, and you know, at that point, the the the, the big traditional company has to make the decision, right? Do they? If, so, so there's three options for them, right? One is they invest and they try to compete with the technology. Two is they stay doing what they're doing and you know try to ride out in the sunset, but likely, likely the case that they won't yeah. they won't last very long. Or three, they sort of a uh, well was well, <laughs> three they work with government to sort of raise to sort of increase regulation and make it more difficult for new competitors to come in exactly yeah. and economists have a term for that it's called rent seeking behavior mm. right S- special interest you know regulatory capture yeah it's right. it's yeah it, it, how do i put this it's it's really bad for uh economic welfare and really it's, really it's bad for the consumers bad. because you what, what what it basically is is that you're promoting the benefit of the firm at the expense of everyone else. Exactly, which is why I think many people have a very negative impression about um, capitalism because they confuse crony capitalism with market capitalism. The kind of market capitalism that I favour is one in which there is a separation of business and state. Just Mm. as we want to have a separation of church and state, Mm. we should have a separation of business and state. Mm. But in a crony capitalist economy, What happens that there is a close collusion mm. between state and business, yeah. right, whereby private interests and government interests are working hand in hand, right? And this comes at the expense of the economy. It comes at the expense of people. Yeah. Right? So when people talk about the unfairness of capitalism, yeah. but how big banks, you know, get bailouts, yeah. right, after the financial crisis, right? Yeah. You know, these are legitimate criticisms. Right. But you know, it's not a criticism that can be leveled against market capitalism because we didn't have market capitalism, mm. right? This yeah. is basically a rigged economy whereby rules are, you know, rigged uh, in favor of the few. Yeah, and 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 and, and to add to that, right? I think the dangerous part about this, about this misconception, when you have, when you see like this big uh, crony capitalist uh, right. company, right, and then people say, oh, government needs to shut it down, needs to increase more regulation. Exactly. It's, it's sort of exactly. like a misguided notion. But the, another dangerous thing about about this is that the regulations that they introduce, they come on the basis of good intention, you know, protecting the consumer, yeah. you know, making sure that uh, every taxi company has a license so that you don't get, uh, <laughs> you, you, you don't bump into one who's going like, to like steal your money or, 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 or kill you or something like that, right? Yeah, but the, outcome, the outcomes of that is that they're going to they're gonna make it more difficult for newer, comp- newer competitors, make it more uh, expensive for them to compete and sort of a deter competition, which preserves the power of the monopoly. It's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a weird irony in this sense, yeah. Exactly, and the cycle continues. Yeah, right? yeah. Which is why education, you know, free market education is so important. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay, I think, <laughs> I think we've gone on long enough on the topic. It's been very fun uh, talking to you, Brian. Uh, we, we've, learned, we've learned quite a bit about 
capitalism, mm-hmm. how it contrasts with uh, socialism, you know, how it benefits, where, where its strengths, yeah. where its strengths lies, right? So I guess on, on a closing note, right, to sort of, um, sort of, uh, ask you, uh, so, so I, was, I was just curious, and I, I'm, I'm hoping to do this as a segment for future interviews as well, right? So I'm wondering, you know, who in your field do you personally admire, or who do you take as an idol? Um, I wouldn't say that this person is an idol, mm. um, but I would say that my intellectual hero is uh, the economist Frederick Hayek. Mm. Yeah, the uh, Nobel Prize winner mm. so, uh, from the Austrian School of Economics. Okay, so so what kind of uh, what kind of qualities? Of Frederick Hayek would you like to have personally have or how would you work towards him? I think one amazing thing about F.A. Hayek was his uh, reach of thought mm. so uh, he wrote about um, you know not just economic theory mm. uh, he wrote about um, you know psychology he wrote about law he wrote about history mm. right um, so I guess you know it's the interdisciplinary nature of his thinking Mm. And the continuing relevance of what he has to say about the world today, mm. um, yeah. So I think it's important for an academic, aspiring academic like myself, mm. um, to really engage in this intellectual uh, enterprise of interdisciplinary thinking, mm. right? Uh, how economics can engage with politics, with law, and different different subjects. I, I imagine that yeah. will take a whole lot more reading. Definitely, definitely <laughs> which is why I uh, do a lot of reading in my own free time right. so I can be prepared for interviews like this. <laughs> Right. Anyway, thank thank you for coming on the show, Brian. Thank you very uh, much, Danny. It was my so, pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. So this has been the end of this episode. Uh, as usual, if you want to catch up on more episodes such as these, uh, please be sure to follow Econom- the Economical Rice podcast mm-hmm. on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, or on the website themselves. Brian, do you have anything else that you'd like to promote for Students for Liberty? Yes, I'd like to uh, promote the upcoming event that we're going to have, as I mm, said, on right. the 8th of July. Mm-hmm. It's on uh, LGBT rights and market capitalism and how they are related. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's going to be held on the 8th of July. Mm. Um, it's open to all, mm-hmm. you know, especially targeted to university students and post-secondary students in Singapore. Right. And uh, your listeners who are interested uh, should feel free to visit our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's facebook.com slash SFL. Mm, yeah, okay. and uh, your listeners who are interested in uh, Students for Liberty, mm. what the organization does on an international level, can check out studentsforliberty.org. Mm. All right, thank you, thank you for being on again, thank Brian. You very much. And that's the end of the show, and uh, hope to serve you the grains of capitalism next time. <laughs>